Hi, this is Max Linsky. I'm the executive producer of the Catch and Kill podcast, and I'm here to tell you about a new show from Pineapple Street Studios that I'm hosting. It's called 70 Over 70. It's sort of like one of those 30 under 30 lists that make you feel all inadequate and terrible, except it's the opposite. Over the next few months, I'm going to talk to 70 incredible people, all of them over the age of 70. The show isn't a walk down memory lane. I want to understand what it feels like to be them right now. I want to know what they've learned and what they haven't. And I want to get a sense of how they're thinking about what comes next. I'm talking to people like Dionne Warwick, Norman Lear, Madeline Albright. And the first episode of 70 Over 70 is out today. Ronan was kind enough to let me share it with you here. It's an interview with sister Helen Prejean, who has dedicated her life to ending the death penalty in America. She's an absolutely remarkable person. And we talked about a lot of stuff, including how her work with death row prisoners in this country has impacted her own relationship with mortality. It's a pretty moving conversation. At least it was for me. And I'm going to be having more of them. Every Tuesday, I'll be talking to people over 70 who have some perspective that all of us could use, especially right now. Please take a moment and subscribe to 70 Over 70 wherever you listen to Catch and Kill. And here's my conversation with Sister Helen Prejean. Thanks for listening. I know this program is 70 Over 70, but uh, I really wish I were younger. I wish I were 70, but I am ready. I'm 72 years old. I'm 75, miraculously enough. I am 83 years old. I am 88 years old. You know, I'm here at 92. I'll be 94 in May. I'm 101 years old. I'm Timothy Fulham. I'm 77 years old, and I live in Juneau, Alaska. What is the most impulsive thing I've ever done? I would have to say that it was buying a large church organ for my house. All right, let me see. Let me get this thing going. I was always interested in organs, as long as I can remember. Um, well, it's what I look forward to every day. It's just I just like doing it, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's like sex, you know. <laughs> you just like doing it. And so when um, Stella and I got married, I still had all the music that I had acquired when I was taking lessons back in high school and college. And uh, I think somewhere along the line, I mentioned that I liked to play the organ and she announced firmly that she hated organ music. <laughs> and, um, and then I dropped it. And I didn't touch an organ again for like almost 50 years. Well, um, after my wife Stella died, of course, I, I was just heartbroken. I mean, it was awful. And, and um, I think I just wanted a reason to get out of bed in the morning, you know, so I didn't want to become a crotchety old man that <laughs> that sit there and yelled at kids. <laughs> I wanted to have something more enlightening than that. <laughs> and that's when it occurred to me that I might start practicing the organ again.
Uh, what would Stella think about my organ music now? Well, you know, this is, a, this is something, I have a conversation with her every morning when I get ready to start practicing. I said, okay, Stella, it's time to hold your ears now, you know, so I, because I, <laughs> I figured that she would roll over in her urn if she, if she knew what I had done to the house, you know, putting an organ in here. Um, it's big and heavy, it weighs about 900 pounds, and it's connected to 32 loudspeakers which occupy most of a whole wall. So she's either gotten used to it by now or figured out how to, how to hold her ears. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, what I've gained from all of this, I think, is, well, a, a big sense of accomplishment, a, the ability to actually do what I wanted to do back when I was a teenager. <laughs> it only took me 70 years to get there. <laughs> That was Timothy Fulham, and from Pineapple Street Studios, this is 70 Over 70, a show about making the most of the time we have left. I'm Max Linsky. So this is the first episode of 70 Over 70, and over the course of this series, you're going to hear from 70 different people all of them over the age of 70. Here's how it's going to work. The episodes will come out once a week, and each one will start with a story, like the one you just heard from Timothy. And then I'm going to have a pretty long, pretty personal conversation with one guest. A lot of them will be people you know, but I'm hoping you'll get to hear from them in a way that you haven't before. Because I got some big questions for them. Meaning of life stuff. And my first guest has a totally unique relationship with a very specific end-of-life experience. For the last several decades, Sister Helen Prejean has had one goal, to end the death penalty in America. That work has taken many forms. She's pushed the Catholic Church to change its position on capital punishment. She's written three books, including Dead Man Walking. You might remember Susan Sarandon playing her in the movie version. And she's been the spiritual guide for six different inmates on death row. She counsels them, she advocates for them, and she's there when they're executed. Sister Helen and I talked back in December of 2020. It was the end of the Trump administration, and there was an unprecedented rush of federal executions underway. One of those prisoners was Brandon Bernard, who Sister Helen had counseled for years. His memorial service had ended just a few hours before we talked. I would have understood if Sister Helen had canceled our interview. But she didn't. Instead, she got on the phone with me from her home in New Orleans, where she'd been for months on end, and she indulged my questions. She helped me understand what that constant proximity to death has taught her about letting go. She told me about how she makes sure to find time for what she calls the alive things, like watching a movie or grabbing a beer with her friends. And she told me what she thinks is waiting for us on the other side. Sister Helen Prejean is 81 years old. Sister Helen, thank you so much for doing this. Glad to be here. You are 81. Correct. The same age that your parents were when they died, right? Correct. How are you um, 
How are you feeling about death at the moment? Well, you know, it's different when you get to be 81 because inside yourself, you are simply yourself. But time changes for me in that I'll think of projects I'm going to do or when I think of a year like this will be at, hmm, 2026, hmm, wonder if I'll be around or I wonder if I should undertake this. You know, my mother has died. My father has died. Uh, my sister died in 2016. And now my brother, I always call him my little brother, Louis. He's five years younger than me, has been diagnosed with COVID and he's now on a ventilator in ICU. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So it's very much on my mind. And something happens when you look at the totality or the wholeness of a person's life, the feeling I had when mama died, daddy and Marianne, it was like the wholeness of their life somehow became present. You can't comprehend it. Don't don't get the idea that I have rationally figured this whole thing out. <laughs> but I figured out too that the deepest things in life you can you do not comprehend. You don't comprehend when you love somebody. I can't comprehend fully that I got embarked on this mission of, of witnessing these executions and educating the people to abolish it. The big things are bigger than we can put into words or comprehend. Was there a point where you got comfortable with the idea that you weren't going to be able to comprehend those bigger things? No, this is an ongoing thing. I used as the image of my book about waking up spiritually as a river. It's all flow. Mm-hmm. It's all flow. And even while you and I are talking, I might get something of an insight about it, and then it's all going to be flow. Then I'm going to be thinking about the chicken I'm cooking for supper and, <laughs> and what's next on the agenda. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you my sister's story here because when we were growing up, Marianne was always braver than me about physical things. And so it'd be all the kids in the neighborhood, these big live oak trees you have, and you have these big limbs that go out. And there was a swing. And you'd get up and you'd stand on the limb and they'd throw the swing up to you. It's just a rope with a little wooden seat. But the big thing was that you couldn't get the swing up under you and sit on it firmly on the limb and then zoom out. Right, you had to jump onto it. You had to make the jump. And I guess who's the last one on the limb? And <laughs> guess who my sister's down there disgusted with me? Helen, you are such a sissy. Look, we all did it. Grab the rope. Do it. And that's what I, after she died, I heard her saying inside me, now look, mama has died, daddy. I'm doing it. And you're going to die too. Don't try to do it ahead of time. When it comes, you'll have what you need. But don't be a sissy. You can do it. And that's what sounds inside me about dying. That courage she was asking for in you, have you been able to hold on to that since she died? Well, because I'm saying it to you. You know what I just told you about flow? Yeah. It flows in and out. And I have to tell you, I just had this incredible experience, which is I was just with a man, Brandon Bernard, that the Trump administration just killed with the federal executions they've been doing. Yeah. I was able to be with him, and I met a poised man. He was able to sleep at night in his death row holding cell 
where they were going to come for him when it was time. And so I have met people who have been able to meet death like head on and paused, like he wasn't, he could sleep. How do you explain that? I do not. That kind of death is very surreal because it's not like he's in a hospital fading. Hmm. His life energy is ebbing away. He's fully alive. His consciousness is fully alive. His imagination's fully alive. And he, I could tell, all of his energy was going into relating to people. He was being grateful for what everybody had done. Had a good sense of humor. Hmm. Uh, he was able to be present. And maybe that's the gift. Maybe if we can be alive, fully alive in the present moment, that when it comes to death, we'll be able to do that too. I'll be able to do that too. He certainly did. Can you tell me a little bit more about the conversations you're having with him and whether you're guiding him or whether you're just listening and responding? I'm just, I'm just interested in the texture okay, no, of them. Very, okay, that's a very interesting question. With someone like Brandon, who was so transformed, I could tell from his being that he already kind of, not not kind of, That's we don't need diminutive words. He had an inner peace. He had an inner resilience. And so then I could respond to that in him. And I could then share with him what my own faith is, mm. that God is bigger than all of this. And that, you know, the whole Christian thing that Jesus taught that, not a sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing the, the way that each person is loved and treasured and has a dignity. And I believe that about Brandon. And I also wrote him a couple of letters too. And it's like, whatever happens, Brandon, some things are just bigger than us. We can only control so much. And then it's this act of trust. And uh, I just said, Brandon, all I know is, and with people I've been with, you you will have what you need as you need it. So I shared that with him. And at the heart of it is a loving regard for others that we have, that we direct toward them. Hmm. Where there's love in the world, and when we love each other in the world, it's got to be in the fabric of the universe some kind of way. Is that what you mean when you say some things are bigger than us? All these mysteries, you know the word mystery. Mystery covers a lot. It covers, I mean, there's so much of life that's simply bigger than trying to figure things out rationally. Though I believe that things have to make sense. It's a big thing that I have in my book, River of Fire, that you can't just take these articles of faith and, oh yeah, I believe. Like, for example, how did I get so committed to carry on this mission for 30 years and not waver from it and not burn out. That's a mystery to me because I got grasped by something bigger than me. I experienced myself as being a witness, being brought into these executions. And that then the moral imperative was just born in me. I got to be a witness and go out and wake up the people on this. Why did not waver? Why did not burn out? 
because the energy's alive in it and as fresh as it ever, ever was. So I said, shoot, maybe I'm like that burning bush in the Old Testament that Moses saw this burning bush and the bush, it burned, but it wasn't consumed. Maybe passions in life are like that for us. They get a hold of us. And then we, it's almost like we're following them. You know what I mean? I sort of know what you mean, although I also feel like what you're talking about is, is um, sort of exactly what I'm struggling with in a way, which is that I want to figure it out. Like I want there to be an answer. Yeah. You know, I want there, I want there to be like a, a way to solve this puzzle. Yeah. The more intelligent you are, the harder that is because you're used to trying to figure things out. But you're never going to figure it out, Max. <laughs> I should just give up now, huh? <laughs> but not give up, but just be present. To me, isn't that all we got? Yeah, maybe when you maybe when you reduce it down, that is all we got. But like, it's funny that you were just saying about not burning out and how you stuck with this for so long. It's stuck isn't even the word. Stuck just means you're enduring and, okay, here we go again. It's really not even stuck. So how would you describe it? Yeah, in the flow. In the flow. In the flow of it, yeah. And one of the questions I had was basically, how did you do that? Well, you, you do and you don't do. Just like here's an athlete that knows how to do the balance beam, jumps up on it. If you're figuring every step with your mind, you're going to fall off that beam real, real quick. Mm-hmm. Or a pianist that goes to play a piece. It's brain straight into fingers. It's not thinking process of bringing it through your rational consciousness. That first man on death row that I wrote to, Patrick Sonier, never written to anybody in prison before, much less on death row. Sure, I'll be a pen pal to this man. I'll write a letter. Then it moved to, well, I'll go visit him. So I wrote him a letter and I said, Pat, I'll come visit you sometime. Boy, he's so excited. Boy, return mail. There are the visitor forms. And he simply said, well, I'm a Catholic and you're a nun. Would you be my spiritual advisor? I don't have a clue then that two and a half years later when he is executed, the only one who's going to be able to be in that death house in the cell with him or near the holding cell with him three days before he dies and in the execution chamber is the spiritual advisor who's going to be me. I guess maybe if I had known that, I never could have done that. That's interesting what you just said. Like if you had known who you would have had to be, you might not have been able to do it. Yeah, and that's that anticipatory time and that future thing that doesn't exist. And you go, what about this? What about this? Could I do this? Would I be doing that? (laughs) And what has it done to that fire to have federal executions happening at the rate they are now? How do you make sense of how much time you have dedicated to this and where we are with it right now? Well, see, for me, that's an ego question. Oh, look at all the time. And now look at this. Look what they're doing now. But Hmm. see what it has done. And so... See, when I experience this and I can just see it's wrong, how morally wrong and corrupt and morally bankrupt it is, and that the people can't see it, but I'm in there and I'm the witness, that's the fire that keeps burning in me to be able to get out there to talk to them. But like, that doesn't have an impact on you. Is that true? 
I'm trying to describe to you the dynamic that is happening out of these deaths that make it a teachable moment and that plunge me deeper into the mission that is mine. See, an ego thing would be, all this time, look how hard I have worked. Look how much I've tried. And now look at all these killings. That would be ego. Oh, look what it's doing to me. Oh, you know, that, and then the energy fades out of me. Oh, because of what it's doing to me. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with me. Except I've been placed in this position to be a witness. And I found I can talk to people, you know, about it. Uh, and that's what it does. That's what the fire is, see? It's just like, get out there now and do what you're supposed to be doing. Can I go back to the, the the ego thing for a second? Why do you think it is that you can do that, that you can talk to people about it? Well, first, I have a gift of being able to talk to people, and I've had that from the time I was a young person. I could speak to our whole student body in high school. It's a gift. And a lot of ego in it in the beginning. Hey, look, I've got all the then when I was plunged into this very big thing, I mean, when Max, when Dead Man Walking came out the book in 93, 80% of the American public believed in the death penalty, 80%. Mm. In Louisiana, it was 90%, all the former slave states that were doing all the executing. And so what chance did this have, right? So all I knew was I had to take people close to the death penalty so that they could see for themselves and know that as an American people, we do not want to do this. Can a person connect with other people in the way that you're describing if you don't have that fire? Like, are those things necessary for each other? Well, I think the thing that makes us connect with each other the most is when we say, hey, let me tell you what happened to me where what we talk to each other about is what we have experienced, what we understand, what we don't. But it, it has been experienced by us in some way. It has flesh and blood in it, or fire. Hmm. I think that's the way we really connect. See, you and I right now, Max, we having a real conversation. We're talking about real stuff. I mean, you're asking me real questions of things you wonder about, and I'm giving you my real answers of what I've experienced. And that makes us connect. You know, William Faulkner, the Southern writer, once he was doing a master class on writing and he went up to the front and he wrote on the uh, whiteboard, only connect. Hmm. And we're longing for connection, especially in these COVID days, people have been so isolated. I mean, I can't even go in there and be in there with my little brother. The desire for human connection is so strong. Mm -hmm. Another name for that is love. I mean, love is that ability in us to leave ego and leave self behind, to enter into the feelings and thoughts of another human being and connect with them. So connection's everything to me. How are you connecting with your little brother right now? Well, only through 
right when we went in and before he got put on the ventilator, I was texting with him and I just offered to pray with him. Uh, but then he couldn't speak anymore. And, and so the connection is through prayer and through members with his daughters and with his wife, staying close and following every inch of his journey as he makes his way. Yeah. Maybe this is just a, um, like a side door way to ask you that question I was asking before, but you little sneaky being. <laughs> <laughs> does this life you've led this life you're leading, does it feel like a choice? Yes, of course, because we are creatures. We are made to choose. We are always choosing. It's always you're making choices. But I guess some of the bigger things in life kind of seek you out and, and plunk you in. I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to find the, the line between that and what you've been telling me this whole time about whether it feels like you are just being taken down this river or whether you're like picking which forks to take in it, you know? Yeah, well, when the lawyers for Brandon Bernard asked if I'd get involved, I said yes. So there's always, we are always making choices, but it's flow. See, you keep looking for that little line, the line on this side or that side, you know. Hmm. Well, and we all do. You're just doing what a thinking person does. How do you know this? Man, I'm trying to figure this out. I was hoping then you were going to just say the answer. That was the answer, didn't you hear? That's like somebody plays a concerto on the piano and they say, what does that mean? You play the concerto again. <laughs> but see, it's so much bigger than me, Max. I realize that you know, I'm part of something really bigger than me. I got to play my part in it and be true and faithful to it. And the energy keeps coming up inside me to do it. And uh, and so I do. And this, I'm... I'm I, the man that I'm accompanying on death row in Louisiana now, I take one person at a time. His name is Manuel Ortiz. Mm -hmm. Out of seven people I've been with, he's the third one, I believe, to be innocent. But Manuel's going on 30 years. Mm. 30 years, Max. He's going on 30 blooming years in a cell in death row. How do you choose, Sister Helen? How, if you're going to, if you're going to, work with one person at a time, how do you choose who to give that energy to? Well, if you're picturing a little blueprint thing and a little rational thing where you've got a little <laughs> sketch of them and you say, I choose you, uh-uh. You fall into it. So with Manuel, he fell into my life because I was accompanying another man, Dobie Gillis Williams. And I had met Manuel when they had been a gathering, when they were allowing them on death row. And, and he's from El Salvador. And he goes, Sister Helen, if you ever don't have anybody after Dobie, would you take me? And so he was like standing in line. Hmm. Dobie was killed in 99. And I wrote to him right away. And I said, if you still want me, Manuel, I'll be happy to accompany you and be, and be your spiritual advisor, which I have been ever since. How many years is that now? Since 99. That we've been together over 20 years. It's so striking and powerful to hear you articulate that thing. And you've done this like a bunch of times in this conversation where you're talking about yourself as a younger person. And then you just kind of get so quickly to the present and what's animating you, where your passions are right now. It's just, it's just interesting. That's happened like maybe half a dozen times that you've been telling me a story from 20 years ago. Yeah, probably and then, so. 
in the span of a sentence or two, you're just here. You know, that is the nature of time, you know. What do you mean? It's not a linear thing where you can just do it point by point. We're always flowing back. Past, present. But that's also about being present, right? Is you're just connecting that time to today. Well, and that's what memory allows. See, all this is present. I'm like a cloud, I guess. We all are like clouds. They say when you look at a brain scan of a thought, thoughts are clouds. They're not these little linear things like little BBs going around in grooves. Hmm. Here's a question I have, and it's fine. You can just keep you can just keep telling me they're all clouds. I just got to ask you. Go ahead, go to it. This work you do, this fire you have, it seems to me from the outside as though it must be taxing. It must be hard. It must take something out of you. And, and maybe that's just an assumption that's wrong. But if it is, I'm interested in how you think about that. Like, does this take something out of you? How do you take care of yourself? Or do you not feel a need to do that? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, the heaviness and sadness. How do you absorb say, all of that? We, well, you don't completely, but you do. You do feel it, of course. Brandon, I just did his memorial service today. And with the lawyers, what happens to the lawyers and the people on these legal teams that try to save their clients' lives? And then, like, one of them, Chuck, who had to be there to watch as Brandon was killed. And so you saw their pain, too. It's painful. And it's so futile. It's so wrong when when you know the wrongness of something, that this is happening, and of course it impacts you. There's a sadness, there's a weight, there's a heaviness. And uh, and you kind of just have to take it in. And you have to just say, as much as I feel this, Brenda's mama's feeling it a whole lot more. These people that are suffering through it are feeling it a whole lot more. Even the guards, I've been thinking of them. Who were those two guards that came to his door and had to tell him, come with us, Brandon, and they knew they were leading him to, what is happening to them? I feel for them too. And you take it in, and then what it does to me is I have to do my best that this is going to stop and not give in to the sadness. So it's there... And it gets diffused in part by putting yourself in conversation and in relationship to the other people who are around. Yes, of course. And with my friends, I have close friends in the sisterhood here and friends that are human rights lawyers uh, that I'm close to. And I got to tell you, Max, maybe this is from being Southern, but we get together, we cook some good food, play cards, have a beer see a good film, read a good book, all the live things. Hmm. You've been by the side of a lot of loved ones, like best friends and your family, your sister. And my understanding from your books is like, you've been right at their side. That's right. In, In an incredibly present way. And the thing that I was wondering about was... If there's a difference between the presentness that you have in those situations and the one and the way that you are with Brandon, well, of course, there's a difference. I mean, there's an essential human connection with Brandon, but 
with my sister that I grew up with, my mother who gave me birth and loved me and daddy. And there's long, long years of those connections that, that I can't equate them, that they're absolutely the same because, you know, one has a lot of skin in it, a lot of years, a lot of experiences. But you know what? As you're asking that question, Max, it's making me think is the gratitude. Because one way, and I guess this is the ego thing, oh, look, I'm losing my sister. Oh, look, I'm losing my mother. Oh, look, I'm losing. And gratitude is, oh, my God, look at the gift they gave me. Why did I have such a good mother and father? Hmm. Why did I have such a good sister who loved me? Or my friend, Ann Barker, that I talk about. Why was I given such gifts of love and friendship? And it it kind of distills into gratitude when it's at its best. But then there's that whole grieving. It's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. And I can tell you, after Marianne died, because we were so close, she died 2016, it, it just knocks the wind out of you for a while. It just does. Like, where's the joy in life? Marianne's gone. She's gone. How could she be gone? Grieving's just part of it. you got to take it in so that you're not like just living on your surface soul. And uh, and then you get some sleep. You know what you got to do to keep moving. You keep moving. And when you stay in the current and don't just shiver and kind of get in a fetal position over on the bank by the side of the Life River and then fall into uh, self-pity. And it's... It's, you can't stay in it. You have to keep moving with it. And gradually it does get better. And part of the way it gets better is through gratitude. Yeah, the gratitude is a gift that happens. The way you would put it in faith terms is you continue to do as you understand it and have been given it the will of God in your life. Now, that's not a super being imposing something. It has coincided or aligned with the desires of my own heart. And uh, in a way, I was made to do this, called to do this, and I can do this. I am doing this. And uh, I mean, that's the way Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. It's already inside of us, and it's. but you got to be working it. You can't just be waiting for it and letting other people do it. you got to be working it, doing your part of it. Then it, you experience hope. I do. It's an mm. active verb when you're in it. If you're not in it, if you're not putting your hand on a rope and pulling, if you're not engaged, you can be really hopeless. So optimism. Nope. Nope. You don't like that word? Well, it's a very different word. Optimism is you believe that no matter what's going on, everything's going to be better. And hope is a, a active verb of engagement because you believe in the deep down goodness of people. You believe that you can set up really bad systems so 40 million people are still living in poverty and people do not have health care in this country and they, there is not affordable housing. All these things are things that we can change. So hope is a byproduct of work. Well, when you are hopeful, you are engaged. Right, of engagement. Hope, yeah, of engagement. You put your hand on a rope and you start pulling. 
your little part. You can't find it if um, you're just sitting on the bank of the river. Right. You know what my image of it is? It's kind of like we all have this fire banked in us. Mm -hmm. But when we gather with people, and I got to just tell you, this conversation is very life-giving that you and I are having. I feel the same. And it's like you're blowing the coals. You're blowing the coals. And then the, what looked like was kind of a little dead coal, then you just see that fire flicker. Mm. And St. Paul used that as an image. Stir into flame the gift of God that's been given to you. We stir each other into flame. <laughs> and that's been the gift of belonging to the sisterhood, the sisters of St. Joseph. They help grow me up. Uh, my motto in the community, because I had all these half-baked, <laughs> half-baked ideas like you would not believe. And the, and the little saying about me was, there goes Helen again with one of her harebrained schemes, her feet firmly planted in midair. <laughs> and they helped me grow up. I love them dearly. I'm, I'm close to them. Thank God for the sisterhood. There's Helen up with the, uh, up with the clouds again. Feet firmly planted in midair. <laughs> <laughs> I got one more mystery question for you. It's the big uh, It's the big mystery. The big one. Bigger than any of these we've talked about. Life and death, love, all that. Bigger <laughs> than that. What's your current conception of the afterlife? What's, gonna, what's waiting for you on the other side? Well, you see, the other side may not be another side. It may be what if... We just can't see. Uh, you know, there was all this talk of alternative universes. The more we learn about quantum physics and the universe and black holes, and I do not know that I would call it an afterlife. I don't know. I don't have any knowledge of that, direct knowledge. But it was what I was talking about earlier. If we can see the deep down connectivity in things here, and how even as they're seeing about that trees can communicate with each other through the fungi and through the, that everything is so connected. I just can't quite bring myself to comprehend that suddenly all the consciousness, all the love just is snapped short and it's completely over and there's no connectivity. I just simply... I can't, even as a rational being, and what I've seen, bring myself to say that. But I got to say, I don't know. What do you hope is waiting for you personally? That connectivity, that love connection. You know, that mother and father, I got more love than the law allowed. We had such a loving family, Max, and the sisterhood too. I mean, I've been surrounded by love. But I just hope that that... I'll be able to be some kind of force. You know how they say rest in peace? I'm not so sure there's rest. Where all you do is get a hammock and you get to sip an eternal lemonade for the rest of your life or play a harp. Sounds really passive. <laughs> what if it's a vibrant energy, that love energy that we experience kind of on, if we want to call it this side, continues and somehow we can stay connected in the good love energy that is flowing in and out of the world. I guess that would be, if you had to state it, what my hope would be. Some version of a uh, 
fire still burning. <laughs> yeah, getting away from the whole idea of rewards and punishments of a rashful uh, God who's going to demand punishment, put you, burn you in an eternal skillet in hell. I don't buy that. Speaking of fire, what if fire is just love? <laughs> right. right. Good kind of fire. Yeah, good fire. Good fire, Max. And right before you go there, Helen, who do you think you want by your side? And what do you want them to say to you? I don't know. You know, you come to a point, Max, where all those little speeches and those words, I mean, I could give you some stuff now, but it wouldn't be real. I'm going to just trust that when it comes time for me, then I'll be able to somewhat graciously trust God and turn my life over as I've watched these six human beings. I mean, they were killed. And uh, I just hope I can be grateful enough. The way Einstein put it, he said, look, one life's enough to really live our lives that I hope I can just trust enough and be gracious enough. Uh, And because I'm a sissy, because I'm the last one to jump from the limb onto that swing, I just hope that in God's mercy, I can go quick, because if I have too much pain and stuff, I'm going to handle it badly. (laughs) So I'm going to pray that I can leave with a modicum of grace and and humor and trust in that. If it's been this good here, let's just see what we got coming next. Sister Helen, thank you. uh, Thank you for this life you're living. (laughs) Hey, Max, and you, and you. Thank you for uh, dealing with my mysteries. Great talking to you. A few weeks after we recorded this interview, Sister Helen's brother Louis passed away due to complications from COVID. He was 76 years old. Seventy Over Seventy is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, and it's produced by Jess Hackle. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our editors are Maddie Sprung Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Research and additional reporting by Charlie Locke. Our mixers are Raj Makija and Elliot Adler, and Jenna Weiss Berman and I are the executive producers. The organ at the top of the show was played by Timothy Fulham. Our theme song is Like a Dream by Francis and the Lights. And the music you're listening to right now is by Mavis Staples. Additional music by Noble Kids and music licensing by Dan Kanishkui. Our cover art is by Myra Kalman and our episode art is by Lynn Staley, who's also my mom. Special thanks to Josh Gwynn, Aaron Lammer, Guy Linsky, Janelle Piper, and Evan Ratliff. I'm Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. I like the things about